Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Welcome to the Farm Food Facts Interactive Podcast, presented by the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance for Wednesday, April 10th, 2019. I'm your host, Phil Leppard. Today, it's all about water. First, we will connect with Alicia Black, the Managing Director of the Global Food and Agriculture Program at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Then, A.G. Kawamura, former and founding member of the Orange County Produce and former Secretary of California Department of Food and Agriculture, shares what he is facing on his farms throughout Southern California. And now... Alicia Black is the Managing Director of the Global Food and Agriculture Program at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Before that, she was at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where she focused on the foundation's strategic partnerships for ag development, where she coordinated foundation partnerships with China, Brazil, as well as the U.S., and U.N. agencies working to support smallholder farmers. Alicia also co-led important activities to link nutrition and agriculture programs at the foundation and contributed to numerous strategic projects at the beginning of the ag development program, including the first gender impact strategy. Alicia, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thanks so much for having me. So in your role managing food and ag program for the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, tell us a bit about your work in advancing food security, nutrition, and alleviating poverty through the development of agriculture. Great. I'm happy to. So the Chicago Council is an organization that's nearly 100 years old, and its focus has largely been to advocate for U.S. engagement in the world. That's on a range of issues. Um Starting from our early days in the 20s up till now, it's it's looked at uh, foreign policy, security, and a whole range of issues. And, and about 10 years ago, uh, food security became a really important topic globally as the food price spike happened around 2007, 2008. And in keeping with this belief that the that the world is better off when the U.S. engages, the Chicago Council formed a bipartisan group uh, to look at the issue of U.S. engagement in global food security and why that should be a, an important priority. And since then, the council has continued to look at the root causes of food insecurity, of uh, low agricultural productivity around the world, especially in smallholder systems, and has tried to think about ways that the U.S. engagement can support um, advancement on those issues. So in my role at the council, I uh, support the ongoing research that we do. Um, I do public speaking on this topic. We try to convene stakeholders from private sector, uh, civil society, and government to talk about kind of what the challenges we are currently facing and what they will be, and then look for ways to creatively solve them, um, working with private sector, with government. So I'm proud to hear that this was started 100 years ago. What what gave the Chicago Council um, the the idea to even do this 100 years ago? Well, so the, the idea to look at uh, U.S. engagement in the world 100 years ago actually didn't necessarily look at agriculture and food. It was looking at U.S. leadership on a whole range of issues. But I'm Happy to say I'm not surprised to report that um, as early as the early 80s, the Chicago Council had uh, thinkers who were looking at um, U.S. engagement on global food security, on climate change, on uh, water resource management, various issues that they were concerned were going to be um, threats. I won't say that they got all the details right about what might be <laughs> the challenges that we'd face, but there were right. certainly uh, efforts to look at it from a Midwestern perspective and thinking about the U.S. as, a, as a, um, an important actor. But the current incarnation is, is a decadal effort um, looking at, at this issue. And I will say, even though the council may not have been writing about it back in the 20s, 
the U.S.'s legacy on global food security certainly goes back um, to the early part of the last century, and there's been consistent leadership on a bipartisan basis to look at global food and nutrition since then. And in talking about that, in March, you held the Global Food Security Symposium. What were some of the insights that were discussed there? Yeah, the symposium uh, focused on our newest report, uh, which is From Scarcity to Security, Managing Water for a Nutritious Food Future. And this is a report looking at the issue of of water scarcity, which is increasingly Mm -hmm. a challenge for many people. There are about 2.4 billion people uh, about a third of the global population that currently live in water-scarce regions. Um, and so we wanted to discuss that topic, which so intimately affects agriculture, given the large proportion of water that's, that's used in agriculture. Um, but we also wanted to, to talk about the intersections of that issue with other things, like changing diets um, and how that's going to impact the demand for water. We also wanted to talk about how water quality is changing, how urbanization is impacting the way that water resources are shared between cities and rural areas. So some of the discussions we found was that there needs to be a lot more uh, collaboration between sectors and between different domains of policy to find governance solutions and innovations that serve everyone, right? So we need more collaboration between the water and sanitation sector and the agriculture sector because a lot of times on farms, especially in poor communities, the same water point's being used for a lot of different things. You're irrigating and you're also using it for clean water in the household. Um, so we need to work together. Uh, we also need to work more collaboratively collaboratively between the agriculture and nutrition communities to think through how do we create affordable nutritious food that also is sustainable and can be produced by our farmers. So I would say collaboration was a big theme um, and also thinking about sort of what what the challenges that we have ahead of us. Um, Global demand for water is projected to rise by 30 to 50 percent by 2050 as the population rises and so we really need new investments in technology and R&D uh, and we need to recognize that competition is getting fiercer. And so we need to respond now. Yeah, we we all have always talk about, you know, having enough food to feed people with, with the global population. But this is the first time I'm really hearing about the water scarcity, 30 to 50 percent more water. That's a huge number. And, you know, certainly from the farmer, from brands, CPG companies, from retailers. I mean, this is a very big issue that you're taking on. Right. It is. And I think, as you pointed out, I mean, for farmers, this is a very big deal. So 71% of the fresh water is used by by agriculture. But as as, uh, many of my farmer friends will remind us, we're we're all complicit. Everyone who eats is complicit in that 71%. It's really about our, our food needs. Um, so farmers are going to be hit hard as that uh, scarcity um, starts to starts to increase. And I think particularly where we don't have good governance in place between our growing cities who need that food and our rural areas that are producing that food, we need to really understand how we're sharing that resource. Um, but yes, as you mentioned, uh, you know, 20% is the, the next biggest user is 20% uh, at the domestic household level um, and in industrial uh, uses. And then uh, water and sanitation is 9%. Um, uh, there's a lot of water savings to be had in the supply chain. So, I mean, obviously food waste is one place, um, but a lot of the the big multinational companies have really been showing leadership on how you can reduce your water footprint um, using uh, using improvements in in um, your, your food processing in, and, and frankly, also demonstrating that you can put water back into the system even cleaner than you found it um, mm-hmm. if you're in the food processing sector. And we certainly had some corporate leaders that spoke about that. Um, at the at the symposium as well, so uh, it's a big challenge. But I, I think there's a lot of confidence in the in the ability to respond to challenges using R and D. Um, we can respond by having 
seeds that are more drought tolerant. We can also respond by greater investments in precision agriculture, but we can also respond um, through through better governance and collaboration across sectors. So last question, you know, uh, not everybody was able to attend the Global Food Security Symposium. So for those retailers, those brands and others in the food value chain um, that want to get involved, how do they do that? Um, Well, so I would say they can certainly download our report, which points to some very specific ways that that companies can be involved. Um, And I mentioned a few of them just now that there's, there's certainly products that can actually um, contribute to reducing our water usage products that farmers need all over the world. And then I know many of these companies are supplying. Um, but we also have some, some um, information about collaborations uh, across communities, or excuse me, across corporate partners that are working collectively on goals. Um, and those are highlighted in our report. Uh, and we have a lot of blogs on our Global Food for Thought blog, which highlight um, corporate actors that are taking action. So there's a lot of examples to drop on there. Um, and, and we can certainly point them in the direction of more if they want, if they want more information from the council website. And just give them the website address? Yeah, so we're at the, the chicagocouncil.org. And then when, once you get there, you can click through the agriculture program work. Terrific. Well, Elisa, thanks for some great work. And uh, thank you for joining us on Farm Food Facts. Thanks for having me. And now the news you need to know. A dairy group wants the FDA to get more strict about terms that are used for non-milk products. The National Milk Producers Federation has petitioned the FDA to take action against non-dairy products that use terms like milk, yogurt, cheese, ice cream, and butter in their marketing campaigns. They say that the existing FDA rules require that products use the word imitation if they reference a standardized dairy food, but they don't have the same nutritional value. The petition also said that the FDA rules allow for the term substitute or alternative on products deemed nutritionally equivalent to dairy products. If this petition is successful, then plant-based alternatives would either have to prove that they're nutritionally equal to their dairy-based counterparts or change their labeling. The Plant-Based Foods Association responded by saying that restricting milk labeling would be a First Amendment violation and that it would ultimately be found unconstitutional. Well, what grocers need to know is that sales of conventional milk is declining and prices are falling, and traditional dairy is facing other challenges, including an oversupply of milk. Nonetheless, it remains to be seen if this petition will actually convince the FDA to crack down on non-dairy products that are using dairy terms. What will it come down to is the consumer. Is the consumer actually confused by products like almond or soy milk? And from dairy, we move to produce. Grocers can capture consumers with fresh cut fruit. Freshly cut fruits are sweet, convenient, portable, and good for us. Fresh cut fruits satisfy consumer demand for healthy snacks that can be eaten on the go. However, a new report from the Produce Marketing Association has found that healthy and fresh cannot solely drive this category. Fun, they say, is an indispensable ingredient for success. The report states that by turning to fruits and vegetables first and foremost for their health benefits, our audience, meaning shoppers, compartmentalizes produce into the wellness category, traditionally humdrum and prioritizing function over fun. The PMA suggests that grocers should think outside the box when it comes to product presentation. 
Engaging shoppers with smoothie popsicles, fruit kebabs, and healthy bowls are some great examples of how to show consumers how to have fun with fruit. And to boost sales of cut fruit, the PMA further suggests that grocers could offer pre-cut fruit snack packs along with a side of dip and also add pre-cut fruits to salad bars in order to make fruit more accessible to the lunch crowd. The U.S. population's healthier snack habits are on an uptick, and this also puts cut fruit in a terrific position for growth. Market researchers at Mintel are pointing to SPINS data, which indicates that while the $40 billion conventional snacking market declined 2% annually over the past three years, health and wellness snacking grew 6% each year, driven by growth from fresh snacking, which grew 8%. What grocers need to know is don't forget the fun. People eat fruit because it's delicious, portable, satisfying, shareable, and good for us. What often holds back consumption and sales is fruit that needs prep work or fruit that's just too messy to eat. So grocers that combine fun and convenience in the produce department will increase sales. And amidst our growing produce consumption, let's be mindful of food waste as well. How digital twins could allow retailers to give more food to food banks. A significant amount of the food we waste is in perfectly good condition for human consumption, especially when we keep in mind that there's a vast number of food insecure people. Food waste happens at all levels of the supply chain, from farms to distributors to consumers. However, Food that would likely wind up in a landfill and contributing to greenhouse gases could be renewed as a resource by redistributing it to people in need. Waste happens at the retail level, typically due to overstocking or to impose quality standards, and so retailers are in a powerful position to lead the charge, to reduce global food waste, and to feed the hungry. The biggest hurdle that distributors and retailers face isn't a food problem, but a logistics problem. However, if each item were to be digitally tagged, essentially allowing them to have a digital representation or twin on the internet, which would be used to store best before info and expiration dates, retailers and consumers could access apps and technology that identify products that are ready to be transferred to a food bank or put on clearance before it spoils. This could also solve storage space issues and reduce costs that are caused by unused items, since food banks help ease the pressure on a retailer's storage facilities by relieving them of their unused food items. What grocers need to know is that technology can reduce labor costs, waste, and feed hungry people, all wins for the retailer who also could promote these good deeds as a way to reinforce its relationship with the community and build brand loyalty. And on that note, Tyson and cloud-based tech could be the next frontier to reach sustainability goals. Tyson Foods is partnering with the supply chain cloud platform MyFarms in order to accelerate land stewardship practices on 2 million acres of corn by the year 2020. MyFarms streamlines agriculture data management, analytics, and reporting automation. The platform is also meant to investigate which production practices are best suited and most likely to work in each farmer's unique yield environment. In this way, farmers can use the practices that will work best on their individual farm. What grocers need to know is that while this technology is still in its early stages, Tyson's action to reduce its environmental footprint helps raise the bar for innovation in the food and beverage sector. 
By doing this, the company is establishing groundwork for continued improvement in sustainability, performance, and transparency. And this is at a time when corporate leaders everywhere are trying to align business objectives and environmental goals. Next up, A.G. Kawamura brings us right to the ground to hear how he's managing the water on his farms. A.G. Kawamura, the founding member of Orange County Produce and the former secretary of the California Department of Food and Agriculture, joins us on Farm Food Facts. A.G. is a third-generation fruit and vegetable grower and shipper from Orange County, California. He is co-chair of Solutions from the Land, a nonprofit organization that collaborates with farmers, ranchers, foresters, and stakeholders to implement climate-smart land management practices and strategies. As one of the most progressive urban farmers, AG has a lifetime of experience working within the shrinking rural and urban boundaries of Southern California. Through his company, Orange County Produce, he is engaged in building an exciting, interactive 21st century 100-acre agricultural showcase at the Orange County Great Park in Irvine, California. So, AG, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So first, I've got to ask you about this 21st century 100-acre ag showcase. Tell me about this. I want to go visit it. Um, We farm in this very urban area of Southern California, Orange County, that used to be a powerhouse of agriculture. In fact, the old military base that has now been turned into the Orange County Great Park used to be the prized lima bean field of one of the original pioneers of the agricultural pioneers of the area. So the ground underneath the existing abandoned airport, uh, it was actually a Top Gun, the El Toro Marine Base, uh, where they filmed Top Gun. The ground underneath it, we know, is great ground. It's uh, on an alluvial, if you will, plain that sits a little bit above the ocean. It's kind of a banana belt. And so this idea that we could create in a very urban area a showcase of all kinds of 21st century ag production systems um, because it's again a mediterranean climate we can grow two to three crops a year we are actually in a subtropical zone so the kinds of crops we can grow is a very wide range of uh, diverse uh, set of crops uh, fruits and vegetables and so we're trying to put together uh, a place that is more than educational it's uh, it's going to be supported by the pillars of uh, nutrition uh, of of culinary uh, advances, uh, techniques. We know that we're working hand-in-hand with food banks, dealing with food security, uh, and we also understand the STEM component of agriculture or STEAM, if you will, some science, technology, engineering, uh, agriculture, and math. And so all of those become components of uh, a a large-scale edible landscape that we're hoping to pull together. So earlier in the podcast, AG, I, I spoke with Alicia Black, who you work with um, very, very closely, and found out a lot about water. And being in Southern California myself, uh, being affected by water, I really want to get into this a little bit deeper. Um, one of the things as a farmer that you're faced with is called Mother Nature and Mother Nature supplying rain, um, which, as we know, having gone through a drought and more than one drought, um, is cumbersome for a farmer. So talk to me for a minute, if you would, about Mother Nature supplying grain and how else you you need to get water. 
Well, it, it it's kind of remarkable the way our area is laid out. Um, I actually farm in, as an example, three different watersheds. One is very small that leads out to the ocean, of course. Another one's a little broader basin. The third one's actually larger that kind of feeds the L.A. basin uh, of this area of Southern California. And in the last drought, uh, in year three of the drought, uh, I was growing a crop of green beans. Uh, up above me where uh, citrus grows and avocado grows. And in year three, the well went dry of the drought here in mm -hmm. Southern California. Uh, and the owner, I don't own the ground that I farm on, after we barely, uh, and we lost some of the crop, there was a crop of green beans that was compromised because we had no water to give it at the very end. Uh, we couldn't finish it off, in other words. Um, the landlord, when we were finished, said, you know, we want you to stop growing vegetables because we don't have enough water for our citrus and our avocados above you. So why don't you stop? And if that had been our only farm, that would have been, we would have been out of business in sure. just year three of the drought. The following year, one of our other farms is right next to the ocean, uh, less than a mile and a half from the ocean as the crow flies. And in year four, going into year five, we started to see significant increases in salt water intrusion affecting the quality of our water on that farm. Wow. Uh, and to the point where we had to, uh, by the time we got to the end of year four into year five, we shut the well down. Had that been the only well on our ranch, uh, and our only farm, we would have been out of business uh, here in Southern California, even though we're of a relatively, you know, modern kind of agricultural systems that we use. Uh, in between those two locations, and they're only separated by 30 miles or so, we happen to farm in the near the city of Irvine, which has for 30 plus years has engineered an enormously effective water uh, system for you reclaim water, reusing water that's the er, coming through the urban uh, populations, importing the waters from north and south of Colorado and northern California. And because we were using for the last 25 plus, almost 30 years now, reclaim water on a lot of our systems here, uh, we didn't run out of water as long as there's this ample flow of water coming out of the urban stream of uh, developed water in our area. And so the lesson here is, with the right kind of infrastructure and with these new technologies, we had uh, basically the safest amount of water was coming out of an area that uh, could have been in dire straits, literally, had uh, this uh, drought continued into six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. And yet we were felt fairly comfortable that this water supply, which is cleaned up uh, to the point where uh, it, it's uh, almost potable, um, that's what gives you hope that there's these systems uh, in a complicated world that need to be put in place. And that was what our uh, project at the Chicago Council was to talk about how important it is to develop water infrastructure for the world. And let's talk a little bit about the Chicago Council. Um, you, you know, co-authored the report from scarcity to security, managing water for a nutritious food future. You've talked about some of that, but what are, what can other farmers, what can other food people, what, what should retailers be taking away from that report and this, this role that water plays in agriculture and our food supply? Well, there's quite a few things we can learn and observe. Um, it, it, those of us who farm in Southern California and in California, the bulk of agriculture by dollar value is is irrigated agriculture. It's not, as people call it, rain-fed agriculture. is the kind of agriculture 
that takes place in 80% of the Midwest, in Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, it's above 90% of all the agriculture in, those, in that continent is rain-fed agriculture. You hope it rains enough, you hope it doesn't rain too much, and you have a, basically a single harvest per year based upon those rain patterns. And there's other variations of that. But for those of us in here in, in a Mediterranean climate, we can harvest two, three, even four crops a year, but we'll manipulate that with the amount of water we can put on. I average 13 to 14 inches of rain right here where I farm. Uh, this year we've, we're up to 20 inches. And so we've got uh, a, a situation where it impacted us just like everybody else with too much water for a while. But it still comes down to this idea that unpredictable weather means unpredictable harvest. And we try to remind people, everybody that eats should remember that, that that's kind of one of the challenges the global food supply has is that if we are entering into a time of really unpredictable weather, shifting climate ranges, shifting climate, um, we should be very cognizant of that and trying to think how do you build more resilience into your food production systems. Irrigated water is a part of that resilience building. And what about water conservation? We we talk in, or we read a lot about water conservation. Um, how important is that and how does that take place on the farm? Well, usually uh, I would like to make an observation if you're a, a good farmer uh, uh, or a successful farmer, let's call it that, you understand that over-irrigating any crop is not good for the crop, as is under-irrigating any crop is not necessarily good for the crop. And when the crop is especially very young, um, if you mess it up uh, by over-irrigating or under-irrigating it in the early stages after planting, um, you'll always have a negative impact later on as it matures and you get ready for harvest. So um, the idea that water conservation and efficient water use kind of falls under that category of of precision agriculture, where we want to maximize the right amount of water at any given time, and then utilize other uh, means to be able to hold water in the soil. And that means improving the soil tilt, the organic matter that might hold more moisture, the activity that goes on in living soil. All of these are part of that tool set, that toolbox, if you will, that we have to start to put into play uh, really everywhere on the planet, but certainly in our own farms as well, is that water is an incredibly valuable asset and resource. In our case, we have to pay quite a bit for the water, and so the idea that we'd be wasting it is really generally not the case, right? And yet people will complain about, oh, you're using too much water for this crop compared to this crop, or this area should produce this kind of water uh, crop, but not that kind of crop. And those are all nice suggestions or good intentions <laughs> that people may have. Yeah. Uh, but I'd be the first to say that, you know, you might want to ask the question, what's driving those suggestions and the understanding behind trying to prescribe water use and water, uh, water crop selection when it comes down to, you know, a, a food supply? Because there's so obviously so many other places we can save and conserve water and store water and build water, new water supplies. Uh, it's an all-of-the-above kind of strategy, it seems to me. 
And probably the most important thing is before people are out there talking about it and saying, here's what you should do, they should probably talk to a farmer. AG, thanks so much for joining us on Farm Food Facts. And thank you for all your insight. Thank you for this report. And thank you for working with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs on this very important topic. Well, we will always say the easy thing here, that successful agriculture sustains civilization and seems to have worked for the 10,000 years that 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 concept is more than true it's 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 something we all have to be a part of so thanks for this opportunity to share thank you and thank you for joining us on farm food facts for more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives please visit fooddialogues.com under the programs and media tab and visit us on Facebook at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers or on Twitter at USFRA. Until next week.